In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, Queen of all hearts. St. Louis Marie de Montfort. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In our previous conference, we spoke a bit about the nine choirs of angels and how important that word choir is. And the idea that the hosts of heaven are in no small measure put into good and regular order precisely by means of the order of worship, the praise of God. Considering the different choirs, then we spend some time looking at the different ways Almighty God has worked through the agency of his angels in the history of salvation. We conclude it by looking at specifically the role of angels in the coming of Christ into the world. And we want to pick up that discussion now. Because as I noted, when we consider the way the angels are involved in sacred scripture, one of the remarkable things is how much more different our appreciation of what we've been reading or meditating on becomes. The classic example is that idea of the angel who was chosen to bring comfort and consolation to the Lord at the moment of his agony. And how simply focusing on that dramatic figure, the one angel out of the many angels who is tasked with this great mission, pause, makes us pause and all of a sudden we become overwhelmed with just how great a moment this is. And our appreciation of this moment in the life of Christ becomes something deeper and something fuller. Having said that, the Lord refers to angels a number of times as he preaches and as he teaches. On the one hand, when he speaks of his second coming, he mentions that the Son of Man will come surrounded by the angels. When he speaks of that moment when all things are brought to completion, he speaks of the angels going out to gather and to bring in. When the Lord speaks of the final judgment, he speaks of the presence of the angels in that moment. And so we see then the Lord's own insistence, something that is picked up in the book of Revelation, of the agency of the angels, if anything, increasing and becoming more dramatic and becoming one of the great characteristics of that ushering all things to their final completion that we do anticipate that the angels through whom the Lord worked in stages as history has unfolded will be there in great numbers and in great and mighty presence when he brings all things to their final and dramatic completion in Christ Jesus. But between now and then, the Lord also speaks in a different way about angels. He speaks of their solicitous care for the fragile, the weak, 
and the vulnerable. When the Lord speaks of the little ones, he says, see that you do nothing to scandalize them, that you do nothing to harm them, that you do nothing to pull them towards sin. And how does he punctuate his statement? For their angels stand before the face of God. What a remarkable statement. This idea that the angels that watch over our little ones, our children, are disabled, are afflicted, are weak, are angels who gaze readily upon the face of God. And it is those who gaze upon God who watch over these others. And in speaking that way, note what the Lord is saying. This one whom you think has less dignity than you is watched over by one who gazes on the face of God. This one who you think is weak and useless and unable to contribute is one who is watched over by one who ministers to the Lord himself. So on the one hand, the Lord is saying, look at the wounded, the afflicted, the little, the fragile of the world, and lay aside those categories by which you determine greatness, and see that you who can... See that these whom you consider to be small and beneath you are not beneath you at all. Their dignity is so great that the Lord sends those who minister before his throne to watch over them. That is a remarkable statement. A remarkable statement. On the one hand, there's sort of a note of threat there. Don't mess with them because. But there's a greater note in terms of there is a dignity about these vulnerable individuals that is much greater than you can imagine. And there's something about the way the dignity of heaven spills out and over those who are the smallest, those who are the neediest. Having said that, then, we have also one of the classic texts of devotion to the guardian angels, that idea that there are spirits, angels, that watch over us individually. Note, again, that insistence in the Lord, their angels, implied, not one angel that looks after all of them, but rather individual angels looking over the individually vulnerable, the individually weak, the individually needy, and that there is a deeply individualized care and concern that the Lord extends to his people by means of these ministering spirits, the holy angels. That, coupled with that marvelous text from Psalm 91, he has given his angels command and charge over you to watch over you in all of your ways, that they will bear you up lest you dash your foot and stumble that you may not fall. 
And again, note how personal that is. That's not a statement to the people. That's a statement to an individual. And the Lord is insistent on this. Scripture is insistent on this. That not just the nation, but the person is attended to by the angelic goodness of heaven. And as we understand that, that notion that there is an angel who is present to me, who watches over me, someone in the manner of Raphael for Tobias, who walks with me, who guides me. Now consider that prayer that we learned in childhood. Angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom his love entrusts me here. Now, again, sometimes we lose ourselves in the rhyme and don't know exactly what it is we've just said. And so let's just tease out from the rhyme what we're actually saying. Angel of God, you are my guardian, and his love has entrusted me to you. I have been, it's not you have been entrusted to me, I have been entrusted to your care, to your guardianship. Ever this day be at my side to light and guard, to rule and guide, amen. You know, I learned that in first grade in Catholic school and I've never forgotten it. <laughs> um, but, um, but again, once we get past the sing-songy character of the words, which works wonderfully when you're six years old, and which lodges it in your mind for the rest of your life, but if you're not careful, you never get past the sing-song. And so one never pays attention to what we're actually saying. Ever this day, all through today, be at my side. To light, no, to light, to dispel darkness and to allow me to see, to illumine me, to light and to guard. Keep me safe, to guard me. Not because I'm a prisoner, to guard me in the sense of defend me and protect me, to rule and to guide. If we really understand what we're saying, we might pause. I don't know that I want to ask anybody to rule me. Um, and yet that is what the prayer says, to rule in other words, to direct my will and to help turn my will to the will of God. Because of my own willfulness, I often go astray. And to guide. So rule requires submission and to guide, to lead me along the right path. Note how marvelous that is. Illumination, insight, clarity, recognition, protection, defense. The surrendering of my will to that great will which is mightier than my own. And to guide me along the right path. Only one who gazes readily on the face of God can truly do that for me. 
Only one who is completely submitted to the will of God can truly do that for me. And so note that notion of the guardian angel and that simple prayer says an awful lot about how the angels care for us. But that marvelous statement that I have been entrusted to your care. And so again, note how that cuts against the grain of our relentless and rugged sense of independence. I don't rely on anybody. And what does the prayer say? I've already been given over into somebody's care, whether I like it or not. Whether I like it or not, there is someone into whose care my life has been confided. What a remarkably powerful notion that is. That the Lord, in caring for me, has entrusted me into the care of one of his trusted servants. And because it is the angel of God, I can trust that angel. And so his guidance, his protection, his goodness comes to me in this moment. You know, and if I say that and I take it seriously, then the question becomes, why do I not call on the holy angels in time of temptation? Protect me. Guide me. Strengthen me. You see, this, uh, on the one hand, that's a marvelous prayer to say at the beginning of the day. But it is not a bad thing to say it at the end of the day, too. And to keep me safe from the cunning fantasies and dreams that come with night. With the fears that assail me when, and the anxieties that assail me when I can't sleep. Note how marvelous that is. To light, to guard, to rule and to guide. Be ye careful not to scandalize these little ones, for their angels, I tell you, gaze upon the face of God. And so brightened by that glorious light of the face of God, they bear that brightness to us. So now going back to what we said about the nine choirs of angels for a moment and just teasing that out. And again, not so much that we memorize a list of this kind of angel does this. Because honestly, that's not really particularly helpful. Rather, if we think about it that these are nine different ways that angels are involved in the way God cares for the world. And that is a better way of thinking about it. Remember what we said. The low choir, to the extent that we go higher or lower, the first choir, the angels, which all of the ministering spirits that we're speaking about are. You know, if one's in one of the higher choirs, it doesn't mean he stopped being an angel. Um, the word angel means messenger. And so we see that the Lord, among his ordinary messengers, has an ordinary way of caring for us, and that is by assigning us into the protective care of these angels who watch over us, who guide us, who illumine us. And then for the weightier message, there is the archangel or the archangel. 
just like we have archbishops who have a bit of status and authority over the regular bishop or regular bishops in the area. And so note that word arch implies of the same kind, but a bit higher. And so those entrusted with something weightier. And then we said there is a choir that we call traditionally the principalities. And this is the way by means of which the Lord watches over not individuals so much as bodies of people, communities of people, religious communities, parishes. And so the idea that when the faithful gather in groups, there is a way that the Lord is attentive to that common life among them and that that needs to be protected, that needs to be guided, that needs to be defended, and that needs to be sustained. And then traditionally, the church will then, or in the life of the church, those who have written about devotion to angels would propose then a second tier of three choirs. So note the first tier. Ordinary messages, more significant messages, generally to the individual, and then something for the people. Above that would be those groups that we call the virtues, the powers, and the dominations or the dominions. And again, rather than saying there's a certain class of angel that does X, the issue is these are three other ways by means of his angels by which the Lord governs the world and cares for his people. Those that are called the virtues are often described as the means by which the Lord orders the forces of the natural world. Those that are called powers are often associated with the Lord's power over evil. Not power in general, but precisely power over the evil spirits. Power over all of those spiritual realities which is threatening to us, which can diminish us, which can rob us. And the dominations, the dominions, is the dominion of his will. And so note, not oppressive rule, but those angels tasked with making the will of God for the world known, with bringing the will of God into our disobedient realities. And so note, not domination in the oppressive sense, but the rule of the will, the rule of the kingdom, those angels by which the kingdom moves forward. And we have already mentioned the thrones, the cherubim, and the seraphim. The thrones, those upon whom, in a sense, the glory and the presence of God rests and dwells. His peace reigning on top of all of the unruly characteristics of the world. And the cherubim, those of many eyes that look upon the glory of God and see and come to understand and receive his light that they might share that light. And the seraphim, those living beings literally aflame 
with the pure love of God, who bear the warmth and the heat of that love to the other choirs of angels and out to the world. What a marvelous series of descriptions that is. Um, And again, I, I put it out there not to say that this is exactly the way it is, but note that when spiritual masters would reflect on the angels, one of the things they do is by, they, take it, they take advantage of this idea of the nine different choirs to talk about nine ways of relating to and serving the Lord that come to us from the angels. With the highest being the burning flame of charity. And not so much the lowest or the least, but for the most fundamental being the communication of the divine message to the heart that needs to learn how to hear it. Because it's only in learning how to hear it, in receiving, in a sense, the aid of the spirit from the lower choir, that the heart has a chance to eventually get to the point where it can experience the full heat of the love of God. We don't start there. And so you know, just note how marvelously that, ha- that, that works. But this idea then that personally involved in my life is an angel. Whether I give the angel credit or not, there is an angelic spirit involved in my life. And because of the presence of the angel, all of these things in some way will come to me. And so it is a good and a holy practice to pray to the guardian angel, to call upon one's guardian angel. You know, a a number of years ago, it was a common thing among some folks, uh, the advice was, name your guardian angel. I I really don't recommend that. (laughs) It's not for me to give my angel a name. (laughs) Um, I would rather say respect your guardian angel, call upon your guardian angel, Trust your guardian angel. Even admire your guardian angel. Pause and consider what it means to be a glorious being who stands in the presence of the Lord, who sings with such a pure voice the heavenly praises of God. Because that's who watches over you. And one of the best ways to do that, then, is not just to say, protect me, and not just to say, help me. But what a marvelous preparation for Mass it would be. Teach me to worship like you. Help me to pray well. Teach my heart to burn with love for God. Devotion to the angels really, in the end, has to bring us back to these things. And so note, as we now turn now to wrap things up, back to Jesus. After Jesus rises from the dead, note, nobody sees it happen. There are no witnesses that can describe how the resurrection happened on this earth. Okay? Rather, no one sees Jesus leave the tomb. All we see is the empty tomb. And within the empty tomb, what do we find? Angels. In fact, note how St. Matthew tells the account. The Romans have the soldiers posted there, and an angel appears 
and the appearance of the angel overwhelms the soldiers. There's a shaking of the ground, and the angel comes and rolls the stone away, and the tomb is already empty. But note this idea that the resurrection is likewise revealed. Just as the joy of Christmas is revealed to the world by the voices of the angels, by the call and the presence of the angels, so too the mystery and the truth of the resurrection is revealed in no small measure by means of heavenly agency. And so again, note what that says about angels. To truly see into the heart of the mystery, we need heaven's help. And it is angelic help, the help of the messenger, that allows us to truly see and meet the mystery. And so likewise, after the Lord Jesus ascends into heaven, the apostles are there still looking up. And it is the angel standing next to them, not from above, that says, what are you doing? You live down here. He gave you a job. Go do it. He'll be back. But again, note how it's even out of a certain holy wonderment as the apostles are gazing up to the unreachable heavens beyond their sight. Note what the angel does. The angel pulls them out of gazing to where they cannot see and reminds them of the importance of being about what they were told to do. And so go forth, knowing that he is with you and that he will watch over you. Look how marvelous that is. How at the beginning of the Lord coming into the world, the angels are present and active. And how he announces that when he comes to complete all things, the angels will be very present and very active. In fact, he tells Pontius Pilate, if I asked, I'd have 12 legions of angels coming right now to defend me. But I'm not doing that. But that day will come. That day will come. But then, after he rises from the dead, the angels are there too. The difference, however, is, unlike the night of the nativity where the angels filled the sky, and it was only the fact that the shepherds happened to be the only guys outside that they saw them. For the resurrection, the angels only speak to a few, only to those who have come. The angels don't call them to the tomb. The angels speak to those who have found their way there to open their eyes to the truth of what has happened. How beautiful that is. And the same thing, as the Lord ascends into his glory, the angels don't broadcast that to the world, but they speak to those who witnessed it. They speak to those who have seen, and they teach them how to respond, to light and to guard, to rule and to guide. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. Why do you look up to the sky? <laughs> Note the question. Not that you're doing something bad, but let's change where we're looking. Let's change where we're going. But it's a change in the light of the fuller mystery of Christ, which the apostles had not quite come to terms with.
how beautiful that is. And again, this is, this is a beautiful element of the role of the angels in our lives and how helpful it can be from time to time. Maybe ask the guardian angel for a little help with that part of scripture I just can't seem to wrap my head around. And then, as the church begins to move in the world, what do we see? We see that St. Peter is arrested. And he's locked up in jail with double chains. And it is inescapable. And it is an angel that comes, touches his shoulder, wakes him up. The chains fall off, the doors pop open, guides him out. And Peter, Peter thinks he's still asleep. He thinks he's still he's dreaming all of this. As dramatic as it is, there's a certain gentleness about it, a certain otherworldliness about it. This movement of angelic grace by which he is freed of his chains, walked and guided out of prison, and basically abandoned in a back alley. <laughs> the, angel, the, the angel brings him out into the street, into an alley, and says, okay, you can find your way from here. But again, note how marvelous that is. The movement from darkness and slavery to light and to freedom to a point where now you can move without me holding your hand. And that is another piece of the role of the angels, which is not just to hold our hand as if we're infants and guide us through everything, but to take our hand when we need the hand taken and then when it's time for us to walk on our own, to send us on our way. Men of Galilee, why are you standing there looking at the sky? Don't you have something you need to do? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. Go to Galilee. That's where he's going to meet you. And note, the angel doesn't say, and I'll leave you there. The angel just says, now that you know where to go, go and do it. Go there and meet him. So when we speak of devotion to the angels, begin with scripture. Consider what we see in the scriptures, especially how the angels are woven in to the coming of Christ, to the victory of Christ, to the growth of the church, to the way God cares for his people. And then recognize that in miniature, those things are also present in our own lives. And if nothing else, Remember that Our Lady is the Queen of Angels. And there's nothing wrong to turn to Our Lady and say, send the holy angels to watch over me and to protect me. But again, consider what we're saying about Our Lady and her greatness if beings such as this are delighted to be in her presence, delighted to serve her, delighted to obey her. And when we think of the myriads upon myriads, the whole multitude of the heavenly host beyond all counting, just imagine that. An assemblage of fiery, fervent spirits beyond number. And think of what it says about the greatness of the one who has made them. The greatness of the one who commands them. And imagine the thunderous sound of their voices 
mightier than the roaring of any wave, more explosive than the sound of any volcano erupting, powerful enough to shake the earth in a, with a might greater than any earthquake. And that's the sound of their praise. And then consider how great must the God be who receives praise so thunderous as that. And note all of a sudden how my sense of God expands. It's not just that I know God is big. It's not just that I know God is mighty. But that sense of the myriads upon myriads upon myriads, lifting all of those voices in the well-ordered music of nine choirs at worship. And the power of that, the power of that joy, the power of that love, the sheer overwhelming and glorious intensity of that beauty. And these are simply the servants of the Lord. How much greater then is he who has made them and he whom they serve. And note how with a certain sense of the greatness of the angels, my ability to call upon them, my desire to trust them and to honor them becomes all that much stronger. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Thank you all for coming out today. I um, greatly enjoyed this chance to share a few small reflections with you. Yes, Teresa. He's not forgotten. He's not official. No, no. We only know the name. Of, we only have canonical names of three. Uh, Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael. The Bible does not mention another. Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. We're getting there. In fact, you can find lists of the names of all seven of the spirits who stand before the throne of God. It has multiple sources, but one of which is from Jewish mysticism which, reflecting on those seven spirits, assign names to them. Okay? Uriel was the most significant of those others. In the Middle Ages, some of that crept into Christianity. And again, it's not bad. There are seven spirits we hear ministering before the throne of God. You know, it's almost, we got to call them something. Um, but again, but, like, like, but those, those lists of these are their names and this is what they do, we want to be a little careful with that. Um, it's not that, again, Uriel is unimportant, but we want to be careful about uh, elevating traditions about an angel bearing that name into an equal status, stratus of that with Michael, Gabriel, and Raphael, which are the ones that divine revelation has given us to focus on. Okay? In, uh, in Kabbalistic and uh, Jewish mysticism, the figure Uriel actually became the most important of them. Um, and so it was, um, um, you know, so again, there is nothing wrong with using those names. There is nothing wrong with, uh, in fact, in Christian art, often you see the figure of seven angels and they're all depicted differently. Um, one tradition seems to hold that Uriel may well, well have been the angel stationed at paradise with the flaming sword. Um, we don't know. Okay. We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us that. Um, so 
but th that's what it is. It's, I, I, I tend to avoid using those names because of the, I, I don't want to risk equating those traditions with the more stable tradition of the three archangels whose names we do in fact know. The same thing, that's why I was, I was at great pains to stress when I'm describing the choirs and what certain authors have traditionally ascribed to them, that is not normative Catholic doctrine to which we must assent with faith. The Catholic tradition names nine choirs of angels. Those are the traditional names. This is one way of thinking about the distinctions between those choirs. Okay? Yes? Yeah. Okay, let's, okay. Let's be careful with how narrowly we want to define things. Um, Lucifer literally means morning star, or right, prince of light. Um, but the original name of the morning star, the ancient name of the morning star was Lucifer, that light shining, that beautiful light. And so again, the tradition is that that angel who fell was illuminous and beautiful and then fell into the ugliness of damnation by means of his pride. But he can still disguise himself as an angel of light. Um, again, see, this is the thing all too many people miss. Just because a presence is luminous and the voice is melodious and things are beautiful doesn't make it and one of the great techniques of evil and the deceiver is to disguise himself in the light of the saints, even though he's not holy himself. In the early church, the dictum was, show me a saint and I will show you the devil standing next to him. And the, and, and the statement meant not that Satan is attacking the saint. It's that Satan is there trying his best to look like the saint. So that those people who don't look deeply who only see the shallow surface, will be led astray. Um, this is one of the reasons the church has always advocated caution, whether, with a lot of things, whether it's apparitions, whether it's discernment, whether it is spiritual experiences, because if we're not careful, it's easy to be led by the wrong spirit, who does his best to disguise himself like a good spirit. Because we, if we knew it was the evil spirit, we wouldn't trust him. So the tempter longs to disguise himself in the robes of light so that he can lead us into darkness. And um, now you get a question? Okay, um, think of it this way, and, and I think the prayer says it well. God's love entrusts me to that specific angel. And so the relationship between any individual and his guardian angel is ordained by God, okay? Odds are a single guardian angel has watched over a lot of us across the centuries, okay? So given, given our sh relatively short lifespans against the horizon of eternity, you know, I don't know, you know, it's like, uh, does every individual have a unique guardian angel? I don't know. <laughs> or, you know, like, uh, when I pass away, am I, is, is that spot suddenly available on uh, my guardian angel's dance card? I don't know. <laughs>
Maybe, yes, maybe, no, but all of these answers are well above my pay grade. <laughs> yes, in the back. Right. So some of them appear in a recognizable form. Okay? And why? Because they are revealing themselves this overwhelmingly transcendent reality has to, uh, has to make itself known in a way that can be understood. Um, and so you want to think of it as they appear in this way. And uh, they have the ability to influence physical things. But again, angels remind us it is the spiritual that rules the physical. Sin tells us the physical rules the spiritual. You know, Satan, Satan tells Adam and Eve, eat the fruit and you'll be like God. He flips it over. The material is now determining the spiritual. And if we look at our disordered inclinations, that's exactly what happens a lot of times. The physical is overwhelming the spiritual. The proper ordering is that the spiritual orders the physical. And so not just that they appear with bodies, um, Ezekiel sees them with four heads and four wings. Um, you know, those mysterious creatures. Um, but they manifest themselves in a way that allows a person to recognize someone is here. One of the most unusual appearances of an angel in Scripture is Gabriel to Mary. Because we never hear that she saw him. Only that he spoke. And there's a, uh, there's a beautiful painting of the Annunciation by... Um, Henry Osawa Turner, and it shows Mary, it shows the Annunciation is happening and it's dark, and Mary was sleeping. And she's sitting on the side of her bed, her eyes are still heavy with sleep, and, but she's in a prayerful position, but she's, you know, but it's like she's been woken up or waking up, and where Gabriel is in the picture, is a column of light, not a guy with wings, just a, a sheer column of light. And again, it's a reference to the spiritual character of these beings of pure light in no small measure. You've made the winds and flaming fire your messengers, as scripture said. There's a version of the Annunciation by Dante Gabriel Rossetti that likewise show takes place in Mary's bedroom, only in that one she's on her bed, back against the wall with her knees up, almost as if she's been startled. And there, the angel there is more classically depicted, you know, the wings, the white robe, but his feet are on fire. And again, it's, it's a sign of that burning love and holiness that come from heaven. Um, but yeah, in the angels, when they have appeared, because again, most of us are not so sensitive as Mary that when an angel speaks, we'll hear. We usually need something to get our attention. And so the angels take on dramatic appearances so that our thick hearts and dim eyes might have a chance of recognizing that there's somebody here besides me. Um, good question. Um, anything else? You guys are making me earn my pay today. 
there, there's probably a couple traditions that will associate that, but yeah, but he's never named in scripture. Um, the gospel only says an angel came to console him. In fact, you can, argue, you can make a case that it is two different angels in the agony of the garden. Because before the angel appears to console him, the Lord says, may this cup pass me by. And that moment of the cup is not a consoling moment. And so sometimes in art, you see the angel coming to present the cup. And then other times in art, you'll see the angel coming to console. Is it the same angel doing both? I don't know. Is it two different angels? I don't know. Um, but it is interesting that that moment of the Lord has, has two elements to it. One is the experience of the chalice that he must drink being presented. And then after that, when he reaffirms his assent to do his Father's will, is the moment of consolation that comes. Yes? You know, I don't know. Um, my assumption is that our thoughts will be transparent to them to some degree, but I don't know to what exact degree. Yes? Okay, yeah, don't, don't, don't read it that far. When St. Paul is talking about struggles against principalities and powers, he's not merely naming the choirs of angels in heaven. He's talking about spiritual authorities that are disordered. And so just think of it in terms of general. He's not saying like that whole choir of principalities, most of them have gone bad. What he's, what he's really saying is we have to understand that there is a disordered, spiritual power that is at work in the world as well as there is an ordered spiritual power at work. Um, so Paul is just reminding folks that you know, there, there's an element of spiritual struggle which this world, this fallen world, will experience until all things are brought to completion, and we're caught up in that. But there's also a, moment, a, a movement of spiritual ordering that this universe experiences that likewise will become very clear and very apparent when all things are brought to their completion. Okay, on that end, the Lord be with you. And may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, I'm off the clock.